Hello, my name is Andy Crouch. I'm partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis and author of The Life We're Looking For. And you're listening to RYM's Local Youth Worker Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Pirrett. I am very excited to be speaking to Andy Crouch today, and I'm looking forward to jumping into that uh, conversation. Um, before I do that, uh, let me say hello to our, our co-hosts, Linda Oliver and Brent Corbin. Linda, Brent, how's it going? Good. Hey, doing great, John. Thanks for having us. Um, so the focus of our conversation today, uh, I kind of feel like we might be all over the place. Uh, technology, social media, we might be talking about teens and uh, just other tangents that are going to be related to that. Um, but before we do that, I thought it might be fun to just ask, what's the last great movie you guys have seen? Movie or show? I figured I'd just catch you all <laughs> off guard and see, uh, see if you've got anything. The last great movie or show that you guys have watched. Anybody have anything? Maybe this was a fail to try to get y'all to think of this. Okay, I, I do have one. All right. Uh, uh, great. I mean, there are many ways to interpret great, but we're recording this in February, and so we're not that far from Christmas. I will say on December 23rd, at the the, the uh, wildly enthusiastic recommendation of many friends, our family, uh, our, my wife and I, my daughter, uh, watched uh, The Muppet Christmas Carol, Dickens's Christmas Carol, a la oh, wow. Muppets, and it, it was uh, really, really fun. Michael Caine plays Scrooge. He does it completely straight when he took the part he said i will only do this if i can play it just like i would for the royal shakespeare company but he's surrounded by muppets all the other characters are muppets basically and we it's like 1996 or something is it great filmmaking i don't know but we had way more fun than we expected with it so wow and and that was your first time to see it is that right <laughs> <laughs> we're not a big movie watching family so yes i mean that's embarrassing yeah you probably watch it every every christmas uh and probably everyone listening to this is like i've seen that movie too many times but it was a discovery for us <laughs> sure yeah yeah and michael kane i mean he's just yeah he's he's classic he's he's the real deal he's amazing <laughs> yeah well i'll jump in and give brent and linda some time I, you know we're, we're taking our oldest two through uh Seinfeld um that was always just wow. <laughs> you know one of my favorite television shows <laughs> and you know and I thought okay let's let's take our oldest two they're you know older teens and so um just revisiting that and and still watching how you know the comedy's resonating with with their age group it's just some of it's so timeless so oh, super uh, that's currently what I'm I'm working through Linda Brent y'all got anything we, uh, a couple weeks ago, when that big cold front hit a lot of the U.S., it actually made its way to Louisiana, which doesn't often happen with cold fronts, but uh, it was it was really cold, <laughs> and so there wasn't a lot else to do. Kids were still out of school, and um, so we just, you know, looked at what was on at the theaters, and we're probably just going to go see anything, uh, and the thing that, that we saw that was on was... Um, the new Willy Wonka movie. I don't even I actually don't even know how new mm. it was, uh, but it was, you know, we have from 14 down to six. So finding a movie that spans that age range is always a little tricky, but I uh, thought this was a safe bet. And so went into it, you know, obviously knowing the, 
the broader storyline of Wonka and all that. Uh, but I didn't know anything more than that. I didn't know it was the prequel. I didn't know anything, um, neither did my wife. So we sat down and um, I will say we were we were very pleasantly surprised by it. It was, it was a lot of fun. We didn't know it was a musical, which, you know, had, we I was just going to ask, did you know it was a musical? No. no. (laughs) And, um, and oddly enough, this morning I was reading in the wall street journal, there was a front page article about how people are showing up at movies, not knowing that they're musicals and they feel duped by it. And maybe that was negative for them. For us, it was like in the best kind of way, because they had some fun songs in there and, um, again, I, great production value. I don't, you know, whatever it was cold outside and there's nothing else to do. So it worked. And, um, so we just got in the car after and, and kind of with smiles on our faces, it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. very nice. Yeah. I have heard how musicals haven't done as well lately. And so they don't want you to know. Is, yeah. And so they're trying to keep that secret. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting. Uh, Linda, you got anything for us? I don't, like, I don't know that I have a good answer to this right now. There's always a, um, some sort of like a 30 minute comedy show that I'm working my way through that, you know, changes based on what I've just finished. Um, the, the other thing I've been working my way through and some of the theological police may hate me for that is I've started watching <laughs> the chosen. Um, and I, I really, I really like it. We're um, pulling you over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. is it a second we'll, we'll commandment violation would be some people's issue with it. But I just think it brings some biblical stories to light in some uh, interesting ways. and makes you think through some, like I even read some of the gospels different now where I'm like, so I wonder, I wonder how all of that yeah. played out. How would the chosen yeah. depict this, you know, like sort of a thing. Yeah. So that has been, I, it's just really well done. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. They're, in, yeah. they're in your head. <laughs> yeah, I have not I've not seen that show, but definitely uh, heard a lot about it. Um well look, let me let me shift the conversation uh, a bit. Um Andy, I don't know how many times I have referenced Techwise family on this podcast. <laughs> We're oh, just goodness. generally talking to people and have just appreciated that resource. I want to tell anyone out there listening, buy this book if you if you don't already have it. Um but but I'm wondering, Andy. That was written in 2017. Yeah. And here we are, you know, in this current technological age, just curious, you know, as you write a book and it's out there and it's in print (laughs) and you cannot change it, uh, any nuance to that thinking, any thoughts that have come up of, oh, I wish I could have talked about this, added this. I know it's been a while since you've written that, but just, yeah, some Mm. some general thoughts there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well... I think one of my biggest concerns writing it was how do you write about technology in a way that will not immediately be dated because part of the defining feature of technology is how fast it changes and uh, how quickly things are obsolete. And I'm, I'm sure there are pages in the book uh, that are obsolete already, but I tried to minimize, like I tried to very consciously write, you know, I, I basically try to write 10 year books. I, I think it's sort of hubris to imagine a book, can have a life longer than roughly a decade, though some do, and I might hope some of mine one day do, but I at least want to aim for that. Um, and so mostly I feel like, uh, you know, what's in the book itself is held, I still stand by, I guess, but certainly it's interesting what's changed. And um, a couple things. 
I think I I might not have anticipated how much more compulsory screens feel today than they did then. Mm. Um, and, you know, in the book, I, I make some pretty, uh, at the time, radical recommendations. I mean, I actually thought people, I, I thought the book would not sell because it was too radical. I was like, this is going to be too beyond people being able to imagine. Uh, but um, I think I didn't anticipate how schools and so many other settings were just going to build their defaults around uh, a screen-based way of engaging with the world for kids and parents. Uh, of course, I didn't anticipate how uh, COVID, Zoom, et cetera, would invade family life, work, school, church. And the uh, you know, as a total footnote, uh, I think the most devastating effect of COVID in some ways, there's huge effects on education and, and learning outcomes. But I think um, Zoom church was so bad for teenagers. Uh, mm-hmm. They hated it in a way that no other demographic, demographic hated it. And I think the long-term effects of that couple of years just missed having the relational environment of, of a, a real world church is going to be, it's going to be with us uh, for, for the rest of our lives. Um, the other thing though, that didn't exist in 2017 was we really didn't have very much data. People would say, what data do you have on the effective screens specifically on, you know, kids and development, learning, emotional health. And I would say in 2017, 18, 19, too soon to tell where this has been introduced so recently, we really don't have good data, but trust your senses. Like you're, you know, you're an observant human being, like observe the kids in your life. What effect is it having? And, and most people would say, I'm observing some, some troubling effects, but there was no data. Well, uh, just literally before we started this conversation, um, landed in, on my front step here, uh, an advanced copy of Jonathan Haidt's book, The Anxious Generation, which is this just complete, comprehensive. If you've been following his work, it's just a summary of all the things he's been publishing on Substack and so forth. Uh, A comprehensive case that in fact, the sort of wholesale introduction uh, of of phones, what we call phones, you know, uh, glowing rectangles in the lives of kids, generally social media specifically, we now can measure the effects and it's been like a epidemic level uh, damaging event for mental and emotional health. So the third thing I'd say is that the the hopeful thing is I feel like we are actually at a massive turning point in our culture's um, willingness to just let these companies and the devices that they produce and the way these systems operate to just let them take over our lives. I think we're at a turning point where everyone all the way up to obviously our elected representatives and so forth are saying we've got to introduce some guardrails for this. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that gets, that was a long answer. Sorry, but uh, a lot, a lot has changed. And yet on the other hand, you could have seen it all coming. Like, uh, <laughs> cause I actually think we all kind of know this stuff isn't that great for any of us unless we have very careful disciplines about it. Mm. No, that that was helpful. And um, when you said long-winded answer, listen, when somebody asked me what I was going to talk to you about, I said, I don't care. I just want Andy to talk. Um, <laughs> I just said, so please, on this, we want you to have just free reign. Um, yeah, but, but I do like how you ended just uh, that you're hopeful because it does seem yeah. like, hopefully speaking, there, there are some 
changes that are taking place because yes, I, I've been reading through Jonathan Heights forthcoming book as well. And I mean, yeah. very helpful and it's something people are going to need to get um, sobering as well. But, but I thought maybe kind of a, a good place too, as we're, we're jumping into this uh, was a statement you made and it's in your book, the life we're looking for, which I want to encourage others to, to check out. But you talk about this, the fact that we are heart, soul, mind, and strength hmm. um, to, to be truly human. And you, you say, very little technology develops all of these. And right. in some ways, that's kind of the thesis for your entire book that you spend yes. pages talking about that. So I know you cannot just uh, develop that, you know, in this five minutes or 10 minutes, whatever. Um, but take some time unpacking that statement a little bit. And then Brent, Linda, please jump in. Yeah, fantastic. And please do jump in. Uh but uh, yes, this was this kind of emerged for me because I, I felt like so the book "The Life We're Looking For" is is a broader take on technology than the TechWise family. TechWise family is kind of very targeted at decisions parents and families can make uh, for life in the home. But I I wanted to tackle this broader reality that technology is shaping everything about our lives inside and outside the home, and and it really seems to me that the very heart of the technological quest is a quest for impersonal power. Uh, that is power that just kind of operates without you having to be a person to get things done. And uh, machines, obviously, are an example of this. Machines are not persons, and yet machines can get a lot of things done. That A lot of things that persons used to have to do, right? Or sometimes animals uh, cared for by persons. Um and there's clearly lots of benefits to this. And, and I certainly am, uh, I'm not anti-technology. Technology is part of the human image bearing story. But I was trying to get at, you know, kind of this, this fundamental question is, why do we have more wealth and power than any people who have ever existed in the history of the human race? Um, and yet we are also more lonely, anxious, and depressed than any people who have ever existed in the human history, in human history at least at a population level. Um, and I think it's because a world of, uh, of impersonal power is also a very impersonal world. It's a world that's not good for persons. It's not a world that's, that helps you be a person. So that then led to the obvious question, and it, it's a rabbit hole that you can go very deep on appropriately, which is what, it, what is it to be a person? And there's lots of good kind of philosophical and theological answers to this. But the one that I ended up feeling was most kind of generative and satisfying was to go back to uh, Jesus's um, answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? Which is interestingly, maybe the only time that Jesus of Nazareth uh, gives the expected answer to a question. Every, every time Jesus is asked something, he, he answers in a way no, nobody expected, except this time, because in fact, he answers with the Shema Israel, which is the prayer every faithful Jew then and now prays when they get up in the morning. It's, it is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and, and strength. And the only interesting thing is that Jesus, in one of the Gospels, um, adds a, a, a word, uh, which is odd, because this is like, if there's any text that every Jew knows by heart and knows word for word, it's this one. And Jesus changes the wording, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, so I started to think about this. Well, if this is like the, the summary of what we're meant to do and be— then in a way, it's also a summary of what we are, which is heart, soul, mind, strength, complexes designed for love. That to be human, to be a person, is to be this complex of these four 
you know, distinguishable but not separable qualities of, of heart, emotion, will, I guess, of uh, soul, uh, depth of self, uh, capacity for connection to God in particular and, and to some extent to others, um, mind, the ability to actually think through uh, where am I in the world and what do I make of it and what do I do next, and strength, actual bodily constitution all of which is meant to be kind of oriented toward loving God. And then of course, as Jesus says, and our neighbor. Um, so what's happened is that the, the, the core project of our lives, all of our lives, which is to become the fullness of a heart, soul, mind, strength, complex designed for love. Uh, and to, and, and, oh yeah, you know, this phrase, all your heart, like to have allness of heart, allness of soul, allness of mind, allness of strength. Well, that's a developmental invitation, right? I don't have that today. I, I'm not as, uh, well, I'm on the wrong side of the aging curve for this generally, but I'm not as mentally acute today as I could be, right? If I may, I can make choices today that will either make me less, my mind less capable, less present, or more present, even at my advanced age. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I have choices about my strength today. I can just sit in front of a screen all day, or I can go for a walk, or I can lift some weights, or I can get on the rowing machine. And that will make a difference to how much allness of strength I can bring to the world, right? And one way to think about what is the invitation, the human invitation, it's to develop allness of these four dimensions and to also become the kind of person who can put them all on the sur surface of love. Well, when you start to think of, our task that way. It's just striking how little technology helps us with any of that. Um, it, it's, it's most clear on the strength front. And I think uh, not least with a, could I say with a reformed audience, I, maybe not every single listener to this is reformed, but with a reformed youth ministry, you know, the reformed world does spend a lot on the mind appropriately, but as, as biblical people, like we, believe God created us in bodies, right? The embodiment of human being is significant. And the, the technological revolution, starting with the industrial revolution, has been a disaster for the human body. And uh, if you just think about how many of us, uh, like how much weight can we lift? How much can we carry? How far can we walk without getting tired? Like the difference between us and our great grandparents is embarrassing. <laughs> and we all know it's because of the glowing rectangles, right? And so you can apply, but it really applies to all the dimensions. The tech at best, I mean, the mind is the most interesting one because obviously the uh, Steve Jobs famously said, a computer is a bicycle for the mind. Like it's meant to expand the capacities of the human mind. It clearly does. But it also substitutes for the mind and can easily be used in a way that diminishes my ability to really think through the world and know where I am in the world and reason about my place in the world. Um, and in any case, even when it doesn't do like active damage, it, it's very rarely developmental. That is, if I'm actually trying to grow in these areas, I just don't think technology is of very much help. Like, uh, you know, on late night TV, there are ads for these I don't know, electrical things you wrap around your waist and it magically like erases the fat. But we all know like that doesn't actually work. Like if I'm going to, if I'm going to increase my bodily strength and health, I'm going to have to do something non-technological primarily. I'm going to have to get outside or get, you know, get on in some context where I have to do the work. And same thing for my heart, my emotions, and same thing for my soul, same thing for my, my mind. So, uh, 
it's a really big deal to be in a world that, you know, really a hundred years ago, you didn't have much choice. If you wanted to flourish in human society, you kind of had to develop all these things. But now there's a very plausible path through every day that basically lets me passively um, exist rather than actively develop. And maybe just one last sentence here before you all jump back in is um, I, I'm most worried about technology in, in the developmental or formative environments in which we are shaped as human beings. And I am also most, most worried about it in the most developmental and formative stages of life. So the most developmental, like there's nothing like zero to one. There's nothing like one to 10. There's nothing like 10 to 20 for human development. Each of those are really, really dramatically like fundamental shaping uh, periods of life that we never get back and don't get to do over. Um, so I'm much more concerned about how we appropriate technology for children than I am for grownups, honestly. Um, and then the environments, I think there's three kind of primal formative environments for human beings, which I don't know, I'm not saying them in any particular order, but home, school, and church or religious kind of community. The home is a primary formative environment, especially for children, but to some extent also for those of us who are parents. The, the school is kind of where you, where you are inducted into culture and, and become a, a, an adult participant in, in the culture that you're part of. And then church or you know synagogue or whatever religious community is where you're inducted into a community of faith. And, and I really don't worry about using technology at work per se. Like I have too much email, but you know, that's a technical problem. <laughs> I worry a lot about having technology in the home, having technology at school and having technology at, at church, because these are the places where we're meant to be formed as heart, soul, mind, strength creatures. And technology just can't help very much in that. So we should be very, very careful about how we bring it into those three formative environments. Mm, that, that is fascinating. And there, there's so much, as you said, we could just continue to dig into each one of those. And then th those three uh, areas you just talked about, uh, Linda Brent, who wants to jump in? I know you've got something. <laughs> I, uh, I was thinking about, you even started talking about it right there, just the the idea that, you know, screens or the shiny, you know, rectangles that they're so highly personalized in terms of personalizes, you know, yes. you can make them do what you want them to do, yet they're so impersonal. And so the disparity on that. And then a couple right, of, right. I think it was a couple of years ago, I heard you talking about this idea and expanding upon it and talking about um, uh, the impersonalization of them leads to a decreased vulnerability because, you know, if you can customize a world where you don't actually have to put yourself out there and take proper yep. risk and, uh, you know, socially and in all sorts of other ways that what that does in the developmental years, primarily, uh, you know, kind of for our purposes, yeah. let's just talk about the teenage years. So I'd love to hear you talk about that yep. uh, interaction, but also, um, you know, given our audience, mainly youth leaders, um, youth workers, parents, uh, so many of the decision, uh, the decisions are in our hands, parents, I'm thinking right now, as to when we let our mm. kids have access to this stuff. And, you know, the pressures are to give them access mm -hmm. younger and younger. But how would you speak to, you know, the decision makers about giving their kids access to these things, which are, we know are forming them in <laughs> bad ways, you know, and, and uh, uh, giving them right. everything and yet... Uh, robbing them of so much at the same time. Mm. 
Wow. Okay. Those were, there's like four extremely profound questions all in there. <laughs> so I, I'll try to remember all of them and maybe address uh, each of them a little bit. Um, yeah. So there's a big difference between personalized and personal. <laughs> personalized is almost by definition, a simulation of personal. When I get a personalized letter, like a lot of people, you know, we, in many parts of us culture, there's this thing of these Christmas letters that you send out. And maybe, maybe at the top, my, my friend who had 300 of these to send to all the people they've almost lost touch with, you know, took the time to write dear Andy and Catherine, you know, but the rest of the thing is just, it's reproduced over and over. And I'm actually very glad that more and more people are just like, we're just sending a photo, one photo, <laughs> and a happy Christmas, you know, Merry Christmas greeting. And, but um, a personalized letter is not a personal letter. Right. And Personalized is always a simulation and usually a technologically aided simulation. And, and the thing is, the simulation can be very, uh, I think I want to say bewitching, um, because th this is another thing, by the way, that has changed since 2017. The algorithms are getting better. Like they mm. know more about you. They know more about what you react to, respond to. And the and and they can interact with you. Of course, this is part of the sort of addictive like frisson of chat GPT is uh, it's why people got so hooked on trying things out with it is it talks to you like it knows you. And, and this is only going to increase by the way. Um, obviously the, the whole, all the drive in how these technologies are being deployed is to give you a greater and greater sense that you are known uh, by the, we can say the machine, the system, the kind of very large scale process behind it. But <laughs> It's first of all, it's not personal. You are not, in fact, known. ChatGPT knows nothing about you. It doesn't even know there's a world. It's just doing a bunch of linear algebra and spitting out tokens um, <laughs> in a way that's very, very plausible because it's it's absorbed the history of human kind of discourse. But it's not knowing you, and it doesn't care for you. And and that's like the more time you spend with it. You, you first of all, any time you spend with it, you're substituting for embodied presence with another person who could know you and could care for you, and of course, whom you could know and care for. Which is the other thing. It's, these are very asymmetrical relationships. Like Siri never asked me to care for her in any way. My little Apple. I mean, I don't actually ever talk to Siri because it's not very useful, but I'm sure she's <laughs> going to get useful one day. Um, but there, my my you know TikTok never says, oh, I I'm feeling really down today. Could you help me? Right. It's all, oh, you look depressed. I mean, TikTok literally can intuit. Again, it's an algorithm. It's not personally thinking it through, but it just can kind of pathfind its way to, gosh, you seem a little insecure today as a 13 year old girl. Well, let me show you some things that will make you feel more insecure, but that you'll find very addictive and, and <laughs> or offer you really bad solutions that won't actually help. Um but it's not two way. It's not actually anyone that knows you. So you're all you're always at a minimum just substituting. Um, it's a zero sum. We've only got so much time. But you're also very likely, and this gets to your second point, Brent. You are also very likely in a lower risk environment than real life. And I think this is a massive thing for all of us to understand for ourselves, and then especially for kids, because if I could venture a thought about, I mean. I, I'm thinking out loud and you all are closer to this than I am in some ways. I think one of the defining dramas of adolescence is finding out how risky the world is. Um, of course, 
children, to some extent, we, we find this out in phases through our lives. Um, one of my colleagues just uh, was watching a, a, a documentary about a really wonderful photographer named Jerry Cowart, who's a Christian and does amazing work. And his, his uh, I think, seven or eight-year-old son is um, interested in photography, has kind of a gift for it. He's like, let's watch this uh, documentary. But what my friend didn't realize is that uh, one of the places Jeremy has done kind of extraordinary work is in filming and documenting reconciliation after the genocide in Rwanda, where there has been this extraordinary, often Christian-led kind of reconciliation between people who literally murdered others' families, right? Mm-hmm. And part of the film was about this. And and through this, his son, Hudson, learned about the Rwandan genocide and learned that there are people who had murdered their neighbors' families. And this was very destabilizing to this boy who just has li- has never considered that it could even be possible that there's a world like that, you know, um, even though in the context of the film, it was the good news of reconciliation on the other side of that. But first, there's this encounter with like the, the horror, the horror. Well, you know, in in the, the single digit years, I think parents properly, properly insulate their children as much as they can from encountering risk. But the adolescent years, it seems to me, are where you will not you will not become a functioning adult unless you encounter risk. And mm-hmm. I I remember it dawning on me in seventh grade that other kids were talking about me when I wasn't there, and they weren't all saying kind things about me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've just gone through life as if people ba- I basically like people and be- people basically like me. And that that's not what's actually going on. There's this hidden world and there's this game that I have to play and I might lose the game. And some days I'm definitely losing the game. And what, what do you want to do when you encounter that? You want to flee, you want to hide, you want, and, and these algorithms give you a way to hide. So I was very, um, struck by Sherry Turkle, um, who probably a lot of you all know uh, her work. She's a psychologist at MIT, and she's done a lot of studying of um, kind of college students primarily because they're very nearby and she can study them easily, (laughs) Uh, how they interact with kind of digital technologies and so forth. And one of her most fascinating insights was, was asking, it was, you know, documenting kind of in a rigorous way that uh, college students in the late 2010s, uh, much preferred texting to talking, right? You'd much rather text your friends than talk with your friends. And she asked a whole series of them in these structured interviews, why in the world do you prefer like texting to talking? And, and it comes down to one very simple answer, which is when I text, I'm in control of what I say. When I text you, I can read it over. I can decide when to send it, how to send it. When you and I are in a conversation, as in, the, in fact, the four of us are right now, I am only partly in control, right? Control is the opposite of risk. Control is a risk-free environment. And I'm not fully in control. I don't even know for sure the next sentence I'm going to say. I certainly <laughs> don't know what Linda's going to say next or what John's going to ask. And and I don't know how you're responding to me necessarily. But if I could shrink the message down to the bandwidth of a text, I can have much higher degree, not 100%, but much higher degree of control over the message I send and also what the range of interpretation is, right? So is it any wonder that in this suddenly risky world, above all of relationships, which are the most risky thing, uh, 
up to including uh, and including your neighbor might murder your family. I mean, we don't think about that here in the U.S., but it's up to and including like that level of violence, that level of violation, that level of how bad things can get. Is it any surprise that if you're offered a more controlled environment, you'd choose it, especially at this tender moment when you're just discovering the world has these risks in it for the first place. But if you keep choosing that lower risk environment, you will never develop the resilience that's on the other side of pain, suffering, brokenness, disappointment, your own sin, other people sinning against you, none of which is beyond the redemptive capacity of God. And and then you will not you will you'll move through the world so gingerly and you will not be able to offer the redeeming work of God to the world because you've never experienced it in the in the full heart, soul, mind, strength way that it, it's meant to be experienced. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So yeah. So I, the, there was the practical question also, like, okay, so what if we start to really take on board, like how attenuating these technologies are for the very development that our kids are meant to be experiencing? So when do you give them a phone, you know, is the sort of pointy edge of the question. Um, I'm always tempted to answer. So I'm 56 by the time anyone hears this. I, my birthday is coming up in just a few days. Um, and I'm, and I'm okay. always tempted, yeah, thank you. I'm always <laughs> tempted to say, well, I think I had a very unhealthy relationship with my phone until I was probably 52. So maybe wait until they're 52 to give them a phone. <laughs> <laughs> like when I really consider that the, it's not so much active damage as just lost, lost time, lost growth, lost learning, mm-hmm. lost conversations with my kids and my wife. Like just, oh my gosh, I, I'm like, I, I think the 50s would be a good age to uh, hand people glowing rectangles. So if that's not going to happen, um, I think I honestly would say as long as you and your community can stand it, because the longer you wait, the healthier everything will be. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you something interesting. Um, I haven't, there's been no setting in which I could really write about this. Um, and I have to be circumspect about how I describe it because it's, it's real people who didn't give me permission to like tell all their stuff. But I was in a, in a consultation a couple of years ago with a small group of people, all of whom are thinking about family and technology, basically. So these are all kind of experts. Any of them could be maybe, I, I'm not saying they have been, but could easily be guests on this podcast. Wonderful people, all Christian, all deep, all thoughtful. And as we got to know each other, it was like a two-day chance to talk about what we were learning. And uh, so, and you know, you do initial introductions and because of the subject matter, we were like, so, hey, let's talk about like kind of what your own family's experience with this stuff has been. And all of us had teenagers at the time. And the interesting thing was there were maybe six or seven people around the table and and you could actually line us up from one family that was like unspeakably radical. Like, like they, they heat their home with wood. They have no internet in the house. You know, like, you're just like, are you, they're not Amish, but they're, you know, they are practically Amish in their, and even though they live in just like a middle-class suburb of an American city. And then you could kind of line us up. And my family is not like that. Like we've got Wi-Fi. you know, whatever. Uh, and then there were others who, around the table who, in spite of thinking a lot about these issues, if you ask them kind of, how does your family interact with this stuff? It was pretty much American cultural baseline. Like, you know, well, our kids got phones at 11 and 
it's been okay, you know. So, so that was interesting, right? That there was this real broad spectrum. And then we talked for two days. And in the course of talking, you learn more about how things are going for each of these families and, you know, just what life is like and all the trials and ups and downs of, of life as family and parents. And it became evident that there was a spectrum of health also uh, around the table. Uh, everyone here was doing their best. Everyone was trying to be faithful. But, you know, things were going less or better, you know, uh, all things considered. And just the fascinating thing was it completely mapped onto how radical we'd been. The mm -hmm. more radical, the more healthy. Like the the health of this family who, if I describe their life to you, you would just say that can't happen in America in 20. 20, uh, it, the, the just relational health, the, the, the outcomes for their kids, the way they're, you could sort of sense the marriage worked. Like it just was better. And I have yet to really see any confounding data. So I basically would say as late as you can stand in terms of introducing mm -hmm. anything that glows into your house, a TV, iPad, you know, whatever, and school and church, um, I do think there's something about the prefrontal cortex. I'm not an expert in this, but I do believe people who say there is kind of a step change in development in the late teens. And so I think when you go off to college, I think there's less risk, especially if a child has grown up with minimal kind of uh, access to it, has formed those neural pathways of heart, soul, mind, strength, you know, pre-college, I think the risks are lower. And I realize this sounds, well, I'll also say, uh, before I say I realize this sounds crazy, I, I also do think there's some logic in when we let kids drive, uh, which is you now have access to a hunk of metal and glass that can do great damage. And if we give you access to a two ton hunk of metal and glass that can do great damage at 16 or 17, I guess we can give you access to an eight ounce hunk of metal and glass that can do great damage at the same time. So you know, if you want a slightly more practical answer, I think driving age and thinking of it like driving, I've got this from my friends, Tracy Foster and Krista Bowen at, at Screen Sanity. They have this great driver's license analogy. You do not just hand your kids the keys. You, you let them watch you drive. And for a long time, they just watch you drive. And then you actually start telling them what you're doing while you're driving. When they're like 15, you're like, oh, hey, did you notice whatever? Did you notice that guy just ran that stop sign while I was looking? And the reason I was looking is people sometimes, you know, whatever, you know, and then they drive, but you're like right next to them and you're accompanying them at every moment or you have, you send them to driving school, right? We have this, we know you don't just hand over the keys to a car, to a kid in a modern society. And we could use the same approach, should use the same approach for the phone. Mm. So much good stuff. That, that was great. Linda, I'd love for you to, to jump in. Yeah. So some of the stuff you were talking about, um, <clears throat> how like tech can let us hide relationally and, um, whatnot. I, I've, I've heard you, uh, elsewhere refer to kind of this idea of, um, technology offering us thin social connection. And, um, mm -hmm. I don't, I've just been thinking about, so what would it look like for us to, create environments that offer a not thin, but like a thicker mm, social yeah, connection for teens. Yeah. Um, and, hmm. you know, even like maybe one way of thinking about it is um, if, if you took one of those families who's like super tech involved and whatnot, and don't really have restrictions on things and you 
simulated an apocalyptic event where all of their technology all of a sudden didn't work, right? Like, is that all they need? Mm-hmm. Or do they also need something else in order to develop what they're missing without huh. technology, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the number one thing to do, and I recognize it's um, easier in some places and times than others, um, though it should be possible for everyone, it's unjust that it's not, is to get outside. Um, I think get get outside and get moving. Uh, because for one thing, if you're outside and you're moving, your ability to really let the screen take over your attention is smaller, notwithstanding all the YouTube videos of people attempting this very thing and walking, falling <laughs> into manholes and <laughs> running into each other and so forth. But generally speaking, if I'm outside and I'm moving, um, you know, even if I have a phone in my hand, uh, it's it's doing less to me and for me, right? But when we're outside and we're moving together, and this can be walking, it doesn't have to be, it it can be sports, it can be, you know, can be something very, very ambitious, it can be rafting, you know, but even if it's just walking, um, first of all, you're back in heart, soul, mind, strength land, so you're actually using your body, Um, you're, it gives you something to do with your body, which can be uncomfortable, like just sitting and talking, not everybody's super comfortable with that. Um, And it, it takes you into a world that you don't control. Uh, even if it's just your neighborhood. Um, when I'm inside my house, I'm sort of in control, but I, you know, I, a lot of people know probably from other things I've written that every morning, the first thing I do before I pick up any screen, certainly is I go outside and I step outside and suddenly I'm a creature in creation and it's cold or it's raining. The other thing I would say is go outside, no matter what it's doing. I actually think this was a great thing about COVID in my part of the world is my my sense of when I could be outside was greatly expanded (laughs) when the only way to hang out with people was like on my deck in November in Philadelphia, when it's raining, turns out under the, under the little patio umbrella, when it's 45 degrees, if you have enough layers, you can have a great conversation. Right. And in some ways it's greater because you are in that kind of cold, wet environment. Um, So I would, that would be, that would be like one way of thinking about what creates richer environments for relationship. It's when, when it really is when we're activating all four of those capacities. So, I mean, you want to take it to another level, um, give everybody something to read before you get together. Like uh, I did this with a son of friends of ours uh, recently. He's uh, 18 or 19 uh, and he was up for it. He, uh, I gave him a C.S. Lewis essay to read. I was like, come over and let's talk about it. Now, we didn't actually walk. We sat in my fireplace nook and talked about it. But uh, it probably would have been better if I, if he'd read it, I'd read it. Then we come together, we're talking about it. Now we've got the mind involved, right? Um, so just think about uh, every environment you're in. How can we increase the heart, the kind of emotional um, depth of what we're doing, fullness of what we're doing? How can we increase the soul kind of depth of self, attending to depth of self? That's what I think of as soul. I, there's other definitions, obviously, in the Christian tradition. But how do I go deeper than just the surface of myself, um, which always leads me to God, uh, of course, because we're made for God at our inmost self. Uh, what? How do we increase the amount of thinking we've got to do together? And how do we increase the amount of bodily kind of motion and activity and even kind of effort, exertion, Right. The more you do that, the richer your relationships will be. Um, the other thing is, uh, I think that follows from this, and it's challenging, is it's meant to happen in very small groups. And so how you scale this stuff is tricky um, because Jesus did it with 
three and 12 pretty much. Um, and maybe a little more than 12. There's clearly the women who provide for them and follow them. And they're also learning from Jesus, Mary and Martha and so forth are, are clearly there many times. Joanna, there's others. So it's a little more than 12, but it's not a lot more than 12. Um, and, and I really think these formative relationships happen in, in circles of three, which is like the circle of maximum trust. You can, you can fully know and trust just a handful of other people. And then the circle of 12 is neurologically important because it's the number of people you can actually attend to what everyone else is thinking and feeling at some level without losing track. Um, by the way, on zoom, this number goes down. There's four of us. We have little <laughs> videos of each other and I can just barely keep track of the three of you on zoom. Right. But if we were in the room, you could have 12 people in the room. We'd all notice if someone was missing. No. And one of my definitions of community is nobody can be missing without everybody noticing. Like if it's a larger group than that, then it's something other than real community. But in a circle of 12, everyone will notice if, if you step out for a moment, everyone will notice if you step out because you're upset. Uh, everyone will notice if you're totally checked out and bored <laughs> and with 25, uh, not everyone will notice. Right. So smaller groups, more active, intentional kind of increasing of the emotional, mental, spiritual, uh, bodily kind of activity. That, those are the secrets. I feel it was something else that you, that you said at the end that is worth, uh, picking up on, but I forgot the last part of your comments, Linda. The, the apocalyptic event. Or what? Oh, oh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, just briefly. The, so this is, I always want to say to parents, I have, I have the best news for you in a single word, and it is the word neuroplasticity. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the great news, the great good news is your brain can be rewired. Even from horrible addiction, there's beautiful like evidence on pornography specifically. Like even people who get just as deep into porn as you can imagine – there are ways for your brain's neural pathways to be rewired and for that dependency, for you to be set free from that. It doesn't happen just uh, automatically, to say the least, but your brain can be rewired. And this can happen no matter how deep into the, you know, whatever addictive vector you're in. If you withdraw from it, basically three things are going to happen. So, and and I've I've tested this with a lot of families that have tried like tech-free vacations and so forth. And, and it sounds like a great idea, but you need to know going in, the very first thing that happens is disorientation and dysregulation. Mm -hmm. So if that family that you described, if the, if the apocalypse happens and suddenly all the devices are turned off, uh, the, the first thing that happens is a whole bunch of conflict that hasn't happened before. Everybody's angry. Everybody gets really mad at each other. And all these things that have basically been anesthetized by uh, control uh, suddenly are surface, right? I hate you. I hate this family. I hate this world. I hate God. I don't think I even believe in God. All these things will happen, right? So phase one is disorientation and dysregulation. Phase two is uh, the best word I know for it is emptiness. There's this interesting thing that happens where you've had all the fights and you just don't quite know what to do or what to say. And then phase three is rediscovery. You you discover, I do actually have something to say to my child, or my child has something to say to me they've never said. Or, hey, we could play a game together. Or why don't we go do this? Or mom and dad, I've always wondered this. Or I've always wanted to do this. And you'll never get to the rediscovery phase unless you're willing to tolerate the dysregulation and the emptiness phases. And one last thought about that for youth workers and, and people who are in kind of pastoral or shepherding roles is 
as people are going through this, if you have a community that is supporting you in it and believes in you and will hold on to you through phases one and two, you'll get to the third phase. And if you don't, you'll probably give up and be like, well, this vacation was a disaster. We're never doing that again. Um, but there's so much discovery for every single human being. Like no, no one, no system is beyond reclaiming uh, if we're willing to repent, right? Which is basically to give up the things that we've been holding on to to kind of secure our own lives. So it, it can happen. It just requires some support. And that's really good. And I know we're, we're needing to draw this to a close. Um, I, I just thought maybe final words to those parents that are listening to this and, and youth workers, even how they can apply some of this. Just any kind of final words that you'd love to, to end on as we conclude. Hmm. Um, well, uh, don't be afraid. <laughs> like Jesus is at work in our world. And, you know, uh, he's working through people like Jonathan Haidt, who does not at this moment, I don't think believe in Jesus, but, uh, there, there's changes afoot and people are hungry for change. So don't be afraid to offer change because people are looking for something different. Uh, and the other thing I would say a little more by way of exhortation is it starts with us. Like, uh, I always say to parents, don't, you really shouldn't have one set of rules for the kids and another set for the parents. I understand parents, you know, uh, parents drive the car, four-year-olds don't drive the car, but, but generally speaking, like we need to begin with our own, our own lives and, and our, the boundaries we want to set for other people will be far more plausible to them <laughs> if we have them first. And if, if the fruit of them is evident, you know, in, in our lives. So it's a, it's a challenging thing to decide I'm going to pursue a countercultural way, a better way. I'm going to do it first. I'm going to do it more than I'm asking anyone else to do, but that is kind of what leadership is. And I think that's what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. That, that's a good word because we can easily in these conversations just think about students, think about teens mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not turn it back on ourselves. It's, it's about us. It's about that's right. us. In our family, it was definitely about the dad. Dad was the biggest problem in our family. The TechWise family, I wrote it, but it's all insights that came from primarily mistakes I made and that I had to unlearn. And then I got to write the book as if I had this all figured out. I, I had to unlearn so many things in order to be able to offer an alternative. So yeah, it's us. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's an encouragement to, to know those listening and those on this, this call here, uh, we're all in this together and, and none of us totally. are immune and, and all of us are fellow strugglers. So Andy, um, I've got just a page of notes we didn't even get to, uh, but Sorry. <laughs> we'd love to, to talk to you about, but appreciate just taking the time to come on today and to, to share with us. I know others will be blessed by it. Well, it's a gift. Thank you all very much. 